trying to stay healthy can seem like a full-time job sometimes, especially during a pandemic. But I'm here to make that goal a little easier. Welcome to the Nutrition Facts Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Greger. Did you ever wonder about the best way to help combat climate change to live a more sustainable life? That is what the Barretts explore in their podcast, How to Be Good. I had the good fortune to talk to them recently on their podcast, and we had lots of healthy lifestyle ideas to share. Enjoy. We are here and delighted to be here with Dr. Michael Greger. How are you? Happy to be here. I'm so excited. Fantastic. We are. We Thank are you. Also. Firstly, can we ask about your book, How Not to Die? Well, you're talking about the major causes of uh, uh, premature death and, and the solution for it. Could you quickly explain what are the major causes and um, what's the easy solution for, for all these? Yeah, so How Not to Die is split up into two parts. The first half is just 15 chapters on each of the 15 leading causes of death, talking about the role diet may play in preventing, arresting, or reversing each of our 15 top killers. In the second half, uh, I center my recommendations around a daily dozen checklist of the healthiest of healthy foods. I encourage people to try to fit into their daily routine. So, for example, greens every day, the healthiest vegetables, berries every day, the healthiest fruits, uh, legumes, the best beverages, the best sweeteners, how much exercise to get every day, quarter teaspoon of turmeric, tablespoon of ground flax seeds, etc., etc. Just trying to inspire people to include some of these healthy foods into their daily diet, but the uh, more broadly, the diet found to not only prevent arrest, but even reverse some of our top killers, including heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and high blood pressure, is a diet centered around whole plant foods. Um, you also talk about the lack of nutritional uh, knowledge and experience from uh, doctors. And uh, is, do you think that's changing um, recently? And what would you say to doctors that are not equipped with that knowledge? Yeah, you know, doctors, unfortunately, have a severe nutrition deficiency in education. Most doctors were just not taught about the, the impact healthy nutrition can have on the course of illness, and so they graduate without this powerful tool in their medical toolbox. Um, there's also institutional barriers, uh, you know, uh, time constraints, lack of reimbursement. Um, sometimes doctors just aren't paid for counseling patients on how to take better care of themselves. It's more of a problem, I think, uh, here in the States. Um, and drug companies as well play a, a role in influencing medical education and practice. You, know, you can ask your doctor when's the last time they were taken out to dinner by Big Broccoli. It's probably been a while. Um, uh, but uh, things are changing. In fact, there's a whole new specialty um, uh, called lifestyle medicine, one of the fastest-growing medical specialties. I'm proud to be a founding member of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, um, and uh, so this is using lifestyle approaches such as diet and exercise, not only to prevent disease, but to potentially arrest and reverse it as well. And so there's a whole new generation of doctors that are uh, really shifting. And the, the, the greatest interest is among the medical students who, uh, you know, want to not just, you know, slow down the rate at which their patients die of chronic disease, but actually treat the cause and, uh, you know, reverse the, the course, which is why, of course, we went to medical school in the first place. Yeah. It gives us all hope, doesn't it, that we're seeing this change. I love it. I love it. Hopefully it'll come soon enough. <laughs> exactly. 
So uh, here in Australia and in many countries around the world, the governments are refusing to acknowledge that and look at the strong evidence um, le towards leading a healthy uh, plant-based diet. Um, what even in schools here, actually in Australia, um, uh, dairy Australia still sponsored the school curriculum, uh, so, so kids are learning from uh, from from their um, uh, yeah their curriculum. Yeah, well, they're marketing more they're or less. Right. Exactly, they're marketing. <laughs> yeah. True. Um, what what needs to change? Well, the same thing's happening here in the states with the National Dairy Council as uh, providing a lot of the educational materials for schools, uh, National Cattlemen's Beef Association, etc. Um, but uh, not all countries um, are uh, ignoring the science. Canada is actually taking the lead um, in uh, revising their dietary guidelines for the first time. They actually excluded those with industry interests from um, the scientific panel um, such that uh, – and so all of a sudden dairy disappeared. As if they used to have dairy as a food group. Now they just tell people to drink water. Of course, that was the science all along. But it was just there were, uh, you know, conflicts of industry interest. Um, and so they have, not surprisingly, come out with the most kind of plant-forward recommendations, sticking, uh, you know, closer to the science. And that's really all we're asking. We're just saying, look, um, these guidelines should be based on the best available balance of evidence. And the best available balance of evidence is that we should center our diets around whole healthy plant foods. So minimize our intake of meat, eggs, dairy, and processed junk, and maximize our intake of fruits, and vegetables and whole grains and legumes like beans, flippies, chickpeas, and lentils, nuts and seeds, herbs and spices, mushrooms, basically real food that grows out of the ground. These are our healthiest choices. Absolutely, absolutely. And would you say, or, or are you seeing, uh, we're obviously there with the example of Canada, but are you seeing a loosening of industrial agriculture's kind of grip on the government in other places, or is it still pretty, pretty strong? Uh, the, the agricultural lobby is pretty, is pretty strong everywhere. Um, and so there's often this kind of conflict of interest um, where the Ministry of Agriculture is kind of placed in charge of the dietary guidelines. So, for example, here in the States, the USDA has this dual role. They're the ones that does the meat inspections and the dietary guidelines, but they're also their whole mission is to promote agricultural products. Yeah. And so when it comes to, you know, eat more messaging, they're great. They're like front and center, eat more fruits and vegetables, right? Yeah. But so be that, but when they go again, when they tell people to eat less of something, right, then that kind of goes against some of their core policies. Um, and so they say things like eat less saturated and trans fatty acids, which, of course, no one knows what that means. What that means, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, is eat less meat and dairy, but they can't come out and actually say that. Yeah. Um, because, you know, it would kind of be bad for, for the agriculture industry, you know, for the sugar industry. The, I mean, you know, so um, uh, some uh, countries, for example, the U.K., have separated that out. So they actually got rid of the uh, Ministry of Agriculture and separated it out. This was during the mad cow debacle. Um, and realize that the per people in charge of food safety should not be the same people who are promoting these products because they have this inherent conflicts of interest. Yeah. And so whenever that's done, when we actually put dietary guidelines in charge, not of the agriculture professionals, not in charge, but in terms of the healthcare professionals, um, then we actually see uh, guidelines that are much more evidence-based. And again, yeah. that's all we're really asking. There's a wonderful organization in Europe uh, stationed primarily out of Germany called ProVeg, who are actually launching kind of a dietary guidelines campaign going, um, working with 
um, uh, citizens and groups within countries to basically petition their governments to stick to the science, basically, um, and to try to root out some of these industry interests. Um, and that can have a big uh, have a big effect, not just on kind of uh, you know what kind of recommendations are coming out, but in many countries, though the agricultural policies, like what's being served in government institutions such as prisons and schools and um, uh, you know offices, um, often adheres to those guidelines. So whatever the guidelines say can you know make a difference for millions of meals a day, which is why the industry is so um, you know hell bent on making sure that they you know that they they don't tell people to stop eating their products. Um, so their shift is happening, but we can't wait. Right. The health and well-being of our families are such we can't wait till the powers that be come out. Um, just like, you know, back uh, here in the States in the 1950s, we had a mountain of evidence that smoking was causing lung cancer. But it wasn't until 1964 with the Surgeon General's report finally admitting, yes, there's 6000 studies, um, uh, you know, that that uh, that, are, you know, that are implicating smoking and lung cancer, smoking causes lung cancer. So wait a second. Uh, couldn't we give people a heads up at 5,000 studies or something? It's like it just has to be such this overwhelming uh, mountain of evidence. And so, um, you know, we're here in the 1950s where the government has yet to say, okay, fine, this is the healthiest diet. But the the science has said that. In fact, you can go to truehealthinitiative.org which is kind of like the um, IPCC of nutrition. Like instead of getting all the climate scientists together and saying, okay, what's the real facts when it comes to um, uh, climate change? They have together the hundreds of the top nutrition professionals in the world to agree to a consensus statement as to what is the healthiest diet for human beings. And so you can check it out at truehealthinitiative.org. And spoiler alert, it's a diet centered around whole plant foods. Shocker! We didn't think that was going to happen. <laughs> uh, it's it is it is frustrating the government hold and the misinformation due to their both personal and political requirements to line their pockets. I don't, yeah, I can't for, for want of better words, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's understandable, right? I mean, look, if you're a dairy farmer, you're going to tout the you know benefits of dairy. If you're uh, a soda industry mogul, you're going to downplay the risk of sugar. I mean, it's just, I mean, that's just how the world works. But, you know, it's fine if someone wants to put an ad on TV. But um, when we're talking about public policy, when we're talking about some of our most vulnerable populations, like what's being fed in hospitals um, and, you know, uh, senior citizens' homes and to our school children, I mean, you know, then we really need to kind of. Uh, you know, just look at the science and put aside some of these commercial interests. Absolutely, absolutely. So we're a plant-based family, us and our kids, um, and we recently read a study published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, I think it was in April, and this stirred up a lot of headlines about vegan children being shorter, uh, having weaker bones, what would you comment regarding this study? Oh, I, 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 I'm, I'm in book writing mode, and so I have not been following what's, uh, what's been happening. But uh, I will get to the study certainly. I mean, so I, I have not seen. I don't know if it's cross sectional analysis or exactly what they looked at. Um, but until this point, all we had was the Adventist data. 
which showed that if anything, um, vegetarians were actually an inch taller. Vegetarian children were an inch taller than their non-vegetarian colleagues. Um, and certainly not only taller, but thinner. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, which is important in terms of our pandemic of childhood obesity. Uh, but in terms of uh, this new study, I saw the headlines too, and I made a note to, uh, to, to to cover it next time I sit down and do videos, but have to finish How Not to Age first, which will be out December 2022. Oh, I'm, I'm looking forward to that one because I'm just – you, you and I are very similar age, and I'm feeling it suddenly in, in my knees and my elbows. So, I'll be, yeah, I'll be, I'll be reading that with, with, with a lot of interest. Great. So for people not living a, a whole food plant-based diet, what would you recommend they remove from their diets to ensure uh, as optimal health as they can? Yeah, if there were just three things I'd remove first from anyone's diet, it would be anything with trans fats. Uh, number two would be processed meats, bacon, ham, hot dogs, lunch meat, um, because we know they cause cancer. Um, and then third would be uh, liquid candy, soda, uh, sugar-sweetened beverages. Um, uh, those are probably the first three things I remove from people's diet. And if there were just three things to add to someone's mm-hmm. diet, the first three things, it would be, you know, berries, the healthiest fruits, greens, the healthiest vegetables, and then some kind of legume. So lentil soup or hummus or something like that. It's important to get our uh, legumes in every day. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that frustrates me with, I guess, like we love berries or all sorts of berries, but what we're finding is that they are almost being priced out of, out of people's oh. tables at the moment. And, and that is, is very, I mean, certainly here, I mean, even, at the fro- moment, even frozen, frozen slightly better, yeah. but yeah. for example, a, a small punnet or a carton of, of, um, blueberries, blueberries seven is seven to $9. Oh and my God. Brutal. It is, and, and that worries me that yeah, it's being... Fro- frozen. It's being... Go frozen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, we do. As I said... Yeah, you um... stock up. And look, if, you know, if there's a sale on frozen, you know, you just fill up half your freezer, right? I mean, yeah. what are you going to do? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, talking, uh, we are talking about uh, sugary drinks. Um, for people that are still following a calories diet, there mm. seems to be a manipulated argument between um, calories and ignoring calorie density. Uh, could you elaborate briefly on, on that? What, uh, you mean what's... ignoring calorie density for beverages? Not, not specifically for beverages, but, that, but um, I think one of the examples you gave a while ago was um, carrots and Coca-Cola. Oh, right. Right. No, no. So, uh, right. So, so uh, calorie density is critically important. Um, and the example I gave was, um, in fact, it came out of, um, I think it was uh, an editorial from the current and former chair of nutrition at Harvard, where they're talking about how Coca-Cola makes this argument that, you know, you know, uh, uh, 100 calories of Coca-Cola is no different than 100 calories of, of, of carrots. Yeah. Um, and so in a laboratory setting, that's true. I mean, 100 calories is 100 calories. But then, wait a second, got to actually do the math. Um, and, you know, the uh, I forget how many calories was in a, the can of Coke, but the equivalent number, the amount of carrots you would have to eat, it would take you like four hours to eat that many carrots. And you could chug that soda down a few minutes. Yeah. Um, and I mean, and, and I don't think you could even fit that many carrots in your stomach. It was actually, I think it's like five cups of carrots and you only really have four 
cups of space in your stomach. So it's like that gives you a sense of, I mean, of calorie density. So there's a lot more calories per unit volume per weight um, in that uh, soda than there is in the carrots. And so that, and so yes, technically a calorie is a calorie, but you know, uh, you know, you could you could get two thousand. You fill up your entire two thousand allotment of calories with you know uh, two pints of strawberry ice cream. But I think it would take like thirty cups of strawberries themselves. Um, and you know, you just, you couldn't eat that many strawberry. I mean, you, there's some foods that are so low in calorie density. You literally, you'd have to eat like wheelbarrows full of food a day and there's just not enough stomach volume. So that's the nice thing about healthy foods like fruits and vegetables. You eat all you want. You just like can't overeat. It's kind of impossible to overeat. You need as much as you want and you don't have to worry about calorie counting or portion control or any of that um, because it all just kind of naturally takes care of itself. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, can we move on to talk about your uh, other book, How to Survive a Pandemic? Um, and it's obviously um, extremely relevant right now. Um, we are very short of time, and I know you're busy, so we're trying to kind of get as much information as we can. <laughs> <laughs> um, you talk about uh, the imminent risk of pandemics uh, and their causes, and we're, we're in a pandemic now. Do you think that we are risking having bigger ones? Oh, so, I mean, it's it's really important, as terrible, as catastrophic as this current pandemic has been, uh, uh, primarily financially around the world, um, though the deaths are stacking up, is we are, this is a remarkably uh, mild pandemic compared to how it certainly could be. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, I haven't looked at the latest case fatality rates, but last time I looked, it was like 0.4, so yeah. uh, like one in 200 people. Um, uh, that get infected would die, which is, of course, terribly tragic. But if you look at something like um, uh, the 1918 flu, for example, then it was more like 2%. Um, yeah. So it's like 1 in 50. Um, and so uh, that's, 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 you know, you can imagine. And then, of course, we have these bird flu viruses running around, um, uh, like H5N1, H7N9, which has, you know, 40, 50, 60% case fatality rates. Of course, only a few thousand people have been infected. Um, so it's very hard to transmit from birds to people. But once it does, can you imagine a flu virus with, you know, a flip of the coin, whether you're not going to you're going to live or not? I mean, imagine if something yeah. um, that catastrophic uh, acquired easy human to human transmissibility, either naturally or in a laboratory setting, since we know you get we you can make flu viruses that are transmissible literally infecting billions of people within a matter of months and we can make flu viruses little did we know until bird flu came along that have this ebola like catastrophic um greater than 50% fatality if nature doesn't pull it together then some bad actor could potentially do that particularly now with synthetic biology and the the capability um so far and so you know the the thought of a of a truly mind boggling, um, civilization shaking event. I mean, right now, look, doctors and nurses are still showing up to work. There's food on the shelves. I mean, I mean, you know, so civilization goes on. Um, but you can imagine who's showing up to work if there's a flip of the coin death exactly. rate. I mean, that, I mean that. Then it's just. You know, just, you know, bodies in the street kind of thing. That's why it's critically important that we take steps to try to decrease our risk of these kind of uh, catastrophic events. 
and primary and and really go to the source, which is this kind of human animal interaction. Um, um, and we really need to change the way that we're um, uh, interacting with animals, raising animals, such to decrease the risk of uh, of some kind of catastrophic uh, pandemic. Now with swine flu, our last pandemic in 2009, so uh, only about half a million Americans here died of it. It shows, oh, now we have a whole other species we have to worry about, the fact that flu viruses can jump straight from pigs to people. Um, and so now we got to think about how we're uh, raising pigs as well. But so, um, so uh, yeah, we we do. There's 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 a lot to do, but uh, whenever possible, we should try to treat the cause. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and you mentioned also about about um, uh, avian flus and obviously the way, uh, let's say, chicken farming, mass chicken farming is done with cage and things like that. What makes that so suitable for these viruses to develop and and then and transmit between all all the birds and so forth and then potentially out to us? Right. So well, we combine tens of thousands of animals in these cramped, filthy football field-sized sheds to lie beak to beak or snout to snout atop their own waist. It's just a breeding ground for disease. There's a sheer number of animals, um, the uh, the concentration, the ammonia from the decomposing waste burning their lungs. Um, the, uh, the, the, it's like a perfect storm environment, um, in terms of, you know, if you wanted to, if you wanted to kind of play Russian roulette with these viruses, um, to kind of ramp up virulence since there's yeah. no kind of evolutionary disadvantage of killing, uh, your host too quickly because you're just stacked up next to one another. Um, uh, and so that, that's an, able to take some harmless, you know, intestinal uh, bug of waterfowl, these influenza viruses, which exist for um, millions of years without causing a problem until we domesticated ducks and other waterfowl. And then we started getting human influenza problems. Um, and now with the, uh, with the uh, increased intensification of uh, pig and poultry production, um, particularly in areas in Asia since the 1980s, we're seeing this unprecedented rise um, a, a dozen new bird flu viruses that can jump directly from uh, birds uh, to people. This is something just unheard of um, in uh, in kind of a historical standpoint. And the concern is one of these will acquire human-to-human transmissibility. Absolutely, absolutely. So some of us are going back to, or post-pandemic, going back to our normal lives. And, and some slightly trying to change. How would you... How would you say, or how inevitable would you say the next pandemic is, in your opinion, if if we carry on with this kind of the status quo, the new norm? Oh, yeah. So uh, new pandemics are um, are inevitable. The question is, how bad is it going to be? Mm-hmm. And how prepared are we going to be and how we're going to handle it? Hopefully, maybe COVID-19 was kind of the fire drill we needed to kind of yeah. wake us out of our complacency and really take a uh, uh, you know, keen look at uh, where these viruses come from in the first place and what we can do to decrease our risk. Um, probably the most exciting uh, developments have been in, uh, you know, uh, plant-based meat and uh, cultured meat, um, mm-hmm. such that, you know, now, so here in the States, we have, you know, uh, Beyond Meat, Impossible Burgers, who are yeah. making, um, you know, plant-based meat that's kind of so identical in terms of taste, um, and hopefully at one point cost and convenience that it would be, uh, you know, a lot of these big chains are, you know, adding, you know, Burger King, add the Impossible yeah. Burger, that kind of thing. 
Um, and so people can get kind of the, the same kind of mouthfeel, the same kind of texture, same kind of taste they all grew up with. I would be better for them, better from kind of a greenhouse gas standpoint, better from a pandemic risk standpoint. Mm -hmm. And then the kind of the next generation of that is actually real meat cultured um, from animal cells, um, just like we can make. Um, you know, parts of human organs in the lab, we can make animal organs too. We make all the muscle meat we want, um, which is now actually now being commercialized. Singapore is the first country to start selling yeah. it. There's now cultured chicken meat where no chickens were harmed in the production of this chicken meat, but it's actual chicken meat now. Yeah. Um, it's no, it's not any, well, I mean, it's healthier in that there's not a food safety issue because there's no intestines yeah. involved. So you don't have to worry about Campylobacter, E. coli, Salmonella. Uh, but it's it's still chicken. Um, but it's chicken without the lungs, too. And that's the real pandemic concern. And so if you can make chicken without any chicken lungs, without any breathing chickens, um, that's the way you can you can reduce risk. Um, because, look, we've been at this telling people to eat plant-based um, for, you know, years now. People have the information, but only a small percentage of the population is really making the shift. Uh, now, for them, that's wonderful. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of pandemic risk, uh, what everybody eats infects everybody, right? You know, I mean, so you can be as plant-based as you want, but if someone coughs on you from, you know, because some, some terrible thing has arisen from factory farming, you know, so that's why uh, some of these uh, kind of meat alternatives um, are hopes that people can kind of eat their meat, have their meat and eat it too, um, and make it easier to make that transition until, until, you know, instead of, you know, telling Australians they should eat some broccoli. Yeah, yeah, which is a hard thing to do. <laughs> right, I can imagine. <laughs> so with all that's going on in the world, um, both in terms of climate change, um, the, 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 the human and animal inequalities uh, and, and abuses, pandemics and everything else what's what keeps you up at night oh uh yeah no it's 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 i mean what's been keeping me up at night for over a decade has been pandemic risk it was only now people are kind of catching up but i'm like saying look what's going on right i mean my first book on pandemics was 2011 or something yeah. Yeah. um uh and so right the concern that there would be you know, a pandemic with more than just a, you know, a few percent uh, fatality rate. I mean, it's just unthinkable what that would do in terms of, of human progress, not to mention all the suffering that would cause. And, uh, you know, you just, unfortunately, you don't kind of shore up the levees until after the disaster hits. But, uh, yeah. you know, hopefully it won't take a horrible pandemic like that before we realize the true cost of cheap chicken. Absolutely. Exactly. What makes you optimistic for the future? Oh, well, I mean, you know, as I said, the fact that, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, that some of the largest meat producers in the world, Smithfield, Tyson, Purdue, they're coming out with their own lines of plant-based products. So it's the meat companies. And look, the meat companies, they just want to make money. They don't care. In fact, it's so much easier to, I mean, you know, to, to make some plant-based chicken instead of having to worry about slaughterhouse workers and injuries and diseases and I mean, it's like, look, to so their vision at kind of reorienting themselves to be like, we're protein companies, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we just want to make money. And look, if we can make money selling this kind of protein, then that probably, then, then fine, let's do it. Um, and so that's, so it's no longer kind of these niche markets 
for, for, you know, vegetarians, the fact that, so for example, Smithfield, largest pork producer in the world, um, uh, has an entire plant-based line. Um, there's, uh, I think it was, is it Tyson or Purdue? One of the big poultry manufacturers making plant-based chicken. Oh no, Cargill, Cargill, one of the biggest meat producers in the world is making, um, uh, a plant-based chicken nuggets for KFC across China. Right. I mean, it's just like, what kind of weird, bizarre world are we in? (laughs) Um, but so that's really, that's really exciting. The fact that this, it's gone so mainstream, have these large restaurant chains doing it. Um, and, and so we're seeing these kind of big shifts. That's really, um, you know, making it just as easy as possible for people, um, to, you know, diversify their protein sources. That's, that's exciting. Mm, it is. The world is definitely changing. Let's hope we're changing in time. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, if you were to ask our audience to change one thing to save our planet, what would that be? How can it be good? Ay, ay, ay. Oh, it's super simple. <laughs> Plant-based diet. We would love it if you could share with us your stories about reinventing your health through evidence-based nutrition. Go to nutritionfacts.org slash testimonials, and we may share it on social media to help inspire others. To see any graphs, charts, graphics, images, or studies mentioned here, please go to the nutritionfacts.org podcast landing page. There you'll find all the detailed information you need, plus links to all the sources we cite for each of these topics. For a vital, timely text on the pathogens that cause pandemics, you can order the ebook, audiobook, or hard copy of my latest book, How to Survive a Pandemic. For recipes, check out my even newer book, The How Not to Diet Cookbook. It's beautifully designed with more than 100 recipes for delicious and nutritious meals. All the proceeds I receive from the sales of all my books goes to charity. NutritionFacts.org is a nonprofit, science-based, public service where you can sign up for free daily updates on the latest in nutrition research via bite-sized videos and articles. Everything on the website is free. Uh, There's no ads, no corporate sponsorship. It's strictly non-commercial, not selling anything, and just put it up as a public service, as a labor of love, as a tribute to my grandmother, whose own life was saved with evidence-based nutrition.